When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of Seeing and Believing is sponsored in part by NavPress, publisher of Eugene Peterson's Symphony of Salvation. A lot of you listeners are probably familiar with the message, which was initially created by Peterson. As Peterson was working on the message, he also meticulously crafted introductions for each book of the Bible, and Symphony of Salvation collects those readings into a full-color 60-day devotional journey. These introductions are not cold or utilitarian, they're meant to be soaked in. Peterson acts as an insightful guide, pointing out all the important physical details, personalities, and controversies of an ancient world that God loved. The book invites you to lean back and reflect on these insights and the compelling portrait of God speaking directly to your everyday life. You can read it as a devotional, one introduction at a time, or have it on hand when you start reading a new book of the Bible to quickly find your footing in that book's context. Visit navpress.com to get your copy of Symphony of Salvation. listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan, and we've got a big episode for you today. Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of the sci-fi epic Dune has finally landed in theaters after a year-long delay. It seems only appropriate, then, that Seeing and Believing goes big for such a big movie, so I've got two guests on board this time to help me dig into it. Michael Cockerell and Dave Canfield of the podcast Mind Frames are going to be joining me in a little bit to talk about the biggest sci-fi movie event of the year. The spice must flow on this week's episode, number 310, of seeing and believing. Dad, what if I'm not the future of House Atreides? A great man doesn't seek to lead. He's called to it. But if your answer is no, you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. My son. If anything happens, Together, we stand a chance. Yes, we're here on episode 310 of Seeing and Believing. And, you know, it's a big movie that we're talking about on the show this week. So it seemed only fitting that I get an extra big cast of uh, partners to help me record the review with. So this week, I actually have 
two guests joining me in the recording studio, such as it is uh, today, and it's going to be really good. I'm really excited to have them on. Uh, I've got Michael Cockerell and Dave Canfield. Dave is the co-host of the podcast Mind Frames and contributor to Screen Anarchy. Michael is the other half of Mind Frames. Mind Frames is a sometimes half-wrong but always wholehearted film conversation. It's a really great podcast. You guys should check it out if you're looking for more film-related podcasts to add to your earbuds. Uh, but yeah, I'm really glad to have you you guys on. Thanks for coming on, Dave and Michael. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. So uh, I I wanted to kind of get a sense before we dive right into this review of of Dune. I kind of wanted to get a, a sense for what your your familiarity is with this source material because that seems like that's going to be a relevant data point going forward as we as we kind of discuss this movie. You want to go first, Mike, or should I? Sure. I'm a pretty, I'm a moderate fan of Dune. I'm a big sci-fi fan. Dune is uh, probably up there in my top 10 series. You know, Dune is uh, a very interesting book. The source material for this book is, the source material for this film is uh, very interesting. It's from the mid-60s. It's kind of came out in a period of alternative sci-fi where we are getting away from the 50s clunking sci-fi into a sci-fi of the mind where drugs and experimentation thought and dreams were important you know uh, books like stranger in a strange land might be compared to dune where the alien is much is as much alien in his way of thinking and his lifestyle as he is from another planet uh and in both dune and stranger in a strange land the you know the quote-unquote aliens are actually humans who are behaving very differently from our humans and the authors uh, frank herbert uses that to criticize our society dune came out in 1965 it's very much a product of the 1960s it won the hugo award for uh, best science fiction in 1966 it's spawned numerous a whole series that goes even further into the weirdness of the dune universe you know the it, the first dune is really very bare bones and simple compared to what comes in like uh god emperor of dune dune messiah those books are even more out there than the original dune and it, as as i said as well as spawning so many books spawned board games video games of course the westwood game the 1999's westwood uh classic dune which uh could be a recommendation if you love this movie and can't wait for the next one to come out you kind of relive the adventure in that classic 90s game and of course miniseries and another dune movie in the 1980s which we all know um it's it's kind of a critici criticism of like uh in the it's kind of a criticism of of you know, white bread culture, white bread middle class culture, cap criticism of capitalism comes a lot more into that book. You know, there's a uh, organization called Chome, which is a very uh, hierarchical uh, mercantile organization that basically runs the universe of Dune or is one of the f main sources of power in the universe of Dune. Um, so it's kind of uh, it's a very interesting book and very weird. Love the Dune series. I'm so glad that you I got you on the podcast because <laughs> you are a much you're you're much more of a of an expert than I was. I, I read this book I think in in high school and uh, remember very little about it. So I'm glad that we've we've got somebody who who definitely knows his Herbert on the show. Uh, Dave, what's your ref uh, What's your reference point for 
for Dune? Like, what's your relationship with that book? Oh, I think I have a I, I have the perfect follow up to what Mike just did. When I was coming up, uh, when I was coming up, you know, in my in the old days, um, they had um, you know a series of books that you were supposed to have read if you had any affinity at all for science fiction. And of course, Dune was a big book on that list. And you felt sort of an obligation to read Dune. And I had tried to read it, got distracted, um, and just uh, never really got back around to it. But I remember really liking what I read. And then um, David Lynch's movie came out. And my relationship to this source material um, has a great backstory. Uh, One of the biggest blizzards ever to hit South Bend, Indiana, hit our town just as Dune was releasing. And we decided, um, me and my best friend, who was snowed in at my house, to snowshoe over to the local theater because we had called them, and lo and behold, they had to run the movie through the projector X number of times uh, as part of their contract with the studio. So Dune was going to play whether there was anybody there or not. So we snowshoed about half a mile in a blinding blizzard uh, to the Town and Country Theater in South Bend, Indiana, and sat there, had the entire theater to ourselves, and very quickly realized that this was a movie that had gotten away from everybody that had tried to make it or (laughs) act in it or write it. And it was a spectacular experience but also being really bowled over by the visuals. And, you know, it's really cool that all these years later, people do talk about the the Lynch's Dune uh, very rightly, I think, with a lot of admiration, because it's one of those things that it it really has stood the test of time in, in terms of what it tries to do. It's a worthwhile um, kind of, I'll go ahead and use the word failure of a film, um, but the, but the truth is, is, uh, uh, I, I am so glad, you know, it just came out on 4k and uh, arrow just put out a gorgeous big set of it that comes with a poster and cards and the whole nine yards. And, uh, and I think it's deserving of that. It's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a marvelous, marvelous film. Yeah. Well, that's, I, I have a feeling that we are going to be talking a little bit more about Lynch's version over the course of this episode. So we'll we'll put a pin on that and come back to it. But I'm I'm in awe kind of of what it must have been like to literally snowshoe like walk uphill <laughs> in the snow to go see a movie and have it be David Lynch's Dune. That must have been quite the the evening. Well we figured out early on in the evening that we wanted to do something and we felt like watching a bad movie and David Lynch's Dune had just been reviewed by Siskel and Ebert, and I was a devotee of the show. And I I knew that this was going to be one of the great bad movie experiences I ever had. And, of course, being younger at that point, too, I was in no intellectual or emotional position, you know, to deal with the weirdness that was going to be on screen. I mean, I was just a small-town kid in Southman, Indiana, and all of a sudden there are these, like, talking spleens and constant voiceover and you just you know it was just so such a weird weird experience and it was worth every every huff and puff of the snowshoe uh, experience i'll tell you that (laughs) 
That is dedication. Well, I, I, that seems like a good time as any to segue into the review of this new film, which uh, I'm very curious to hear you guys' thoughts because it's no David Lynch's Dune, but I'm, I'm curious to know uh, what you guys think it actually is. Four years after Blade Runner 2049, Denis Villeneuve is back to tackle another member of the sci-fi canon, in this case, obviously, Frank Herbert's mammoth opus. Timothy Chalamet stars as Paul Atreides, the heir to a dynasty whose power spans multiple star systems. That dynasty is imperiled when political machinations within the Galactic Empire place the desert planet of Arrakis in the care of Paul's Duke father, played by the great Oscar Isaac. Arrakis is a harsh environment full of dangers from its climate to the political backstabbing surrounding it, and it could ruin the Atreides clan or elevate them to the most powerful place in the galaxy, thanks to the precious resource Spice contained within its sand dunes. David Michael, obviously, you know, this is a really high-stakes adaptation. We've already talked about just how large Frank Herbert's work looms over the sci-fi landscape. It has the influence of, you know, a Lord of the Rings within the sci-fi genre. So Villeneuve definitely has taken on a lot with this adaptation. I, I've, you know, in that synopsis that I just went through, I didn't even try to delve into the complexity of the settings, political factions, the religions, the colonial undertones. So, you know, we'll keep things simple here at the top and delve into those things as we go along. But my question to get us started for for us is, do you think that this adaptation does all those complexities justice? Uh, I think uh, I'll go first again. Uh, and I think no, but I don't fault it for that because I think one of the reasons that so many adaptations of Dune have faltered over the years is that it is such a book that is richly deep in so many layers and the world building on it is so layered that it's almost impossible to translate into a movie. And But what I think they've done here is they have picked out a lot of the best aspects of Dune and put that to film and expanded upon them and created a visually stunning movie that is very entertaining. But as far as following every thread that is in the novel Dune, I think that's impossible. That's setting the bar too high. I think they've done a good job and rightly chose out things that would transfer well to a screen and make a compelling blockbuster. Well, and I and I and I'll and I'll follow that up. You know, it's it's funny. I will never forget going to see um, the first Lord of the Rings film with a whole group of people, and uh, we had a guy behind us coming down the steps of the theater as we all left, sort of just completely dazzled, and he said, "Man." They got to make a sequel to that. And, you know, uh, <laughs> we all burst out laughing. And I think that that's really the thing about Dune is if you wanted to even attempt any sort of, you know, comprehensiveness, you'd have to do a TV series. I don't even think you could do a miniseries. Um, and not bad. I don't know that books always need to be treated with quite the kid gloves. I mean, a lot of the Lord of the Rings fans really complained about, you know, the different things that were removed from the uh, the three original Lord of the Rings films to make room, you know? And then we see them later inserted into The Hobbit, things like Tom Bombadil and things like that. Um, and probably in response to some of that fan unhappiness or whatever. But here, I don't think you're going to get that from sci-fi fans. I think that 
there's a sense in which Dune is an epic of epics. And does this movie aim big? Yes, it absolutely does. Does it hit big? I think what it does, it does well. And it does more than give you just cliff notes. It gives you reasons to care about characters. And um, it gives you reasons to care about what's going on in Arrakis and um, the, the relationship that everyone has to the spice. And it sets up, you know, the next film really well. Um, that said, it is an unusually, there's not a lot of dialogue in the film, but there is a lot of quietude for sort of an epic film. And I feel like um, even the score, you know, is different than the sort of bombastic thing that we usually associate with these kinds of movies. So it's very much its own thing. I think it it probably does the book more justice than anything that's ever gone before, for sure. Um, and uh, I can't wait to see the next one. You, you know, it, it, it's times like these where when I feel bad that I have guests on because I, you know, I... I, I bring I bring you on. I want to be welcoming on the show, and then it makes me feel bad when I disagree <laughs> with my guests because I you know, I like both of you guys, and I I I obviously you are both much more knowledgeable about the source material than I am. So you know, uh, taking that said from from the outset, I yeah, it's it's interesting, Dave, that you mentioned the um, that that you you felt that this this movie you know, gave you reasons to to care about the characters because I guess that was my main reservation about the movie coming out of it. It wasn't so much that it was a poor film. I think there's a lot to commend about it. I really was impressed by the the scale of Villeneuve's achievement. It, it reminds me a little bit in some moments of, you know, something like 2001 A Space Odyssey where it just feels like you're watching something monumental, uh, even if that's just in terms of the technique that went into creating those images that's still got a power all its own but for me i guess the the problem was i never really i i felt like the the movie was kind of embarking on a cliff notes journey where it was hitting a lot of the the plot points that i do remember from reading it you know way way back when i remembered okay i i remember the the you know the the way that the uh the knife fights went i remember the relation, how the relationship was between uh, Duke Atreides and uh, Jessica, his wife, played by Rebecca Ferguson. Here, like that, that stuff all was present, but I, it felt almost to me like Villeneuve was really trying to cram so much of the the book into this movie to be as faithful as possible that those those, those moments where we would be brought to care about the characters, I guess, I felt like were um not given the the space enough to breathe I, I i guess like maybe if i had a closer relationship to this to the source material i'd be able to sort of fill in the blanks mentally but as somebody who's kind of not coming into it cold but you know the next the next thing to coming into it cold it just did feel like ah, i just th there there are moments that i felt like i needed more from those character scenes to really feel much of anything about the these people who are surrounded by these huge impressive sets 
I think you've 100% nailed a problem with this movie and an overall problem with adaptations of a book to a, a film um, or how that can be a problem. What I mean by that is this movie is visually stunning and it has got the spectacle of Dune 100% correct. It looks like I imagine Dune looking in my mind. When the Atreides ships emerge from the sea on their homeworld of Caladan, that is exactly what I thought that would look like in my mind. It's or at least I've convinced myself that's what I thought it would look like. That it's that good. However, in the book Dune, or in any book, you can see inside the thoughts of a character like Paul. Inside the book Dune, we can see Paul see these the same spectacle we're seeing with our eyes in the in the film Dune, but we have his thoughts. And Paul is a character who has an incl- inclination cord towards righteousness. Um, Paul Atreides. And so, for instance, in the scene in the movie, we have a scene in the movie where Paul is subject to, you know, tests by the Bene Gesserit before they leave for Arrakis. And in the book, we see those tests, but inside Paul's mind, we see inside Paul's mind through the book, we hear his suspicion of their political mechanizations, you know. Uh, and there's a little bit of that said and shown in the movie, but it's nothing compared to what you can actually do with the book. And I think a lot of, uh, Paul's goodness is missing. And, you know, we're shown how the natives of Arrakis are treated as, you know, servants. But in the in the book, we get Paul's sympathization, you know, sympathizing with them, whereas we're just witnessing Paul sympathizing with them, which is another layer removed from that. And I think that makes it harder to love Paul, who is the center character of this story. Uh, I think that's something that is hard to get. And that's part of the reason why I say it's hard to translate into a film. Now, you could do that with a bunch of voiceover. <laughs> but um, we won't get into that well, yet. Well, you know what? Well, I, I mean, just let me let me just answer, Mike, because I think, Mike, you're right. And Kevin, I, I, I get what you're saying. I re- and, and, and mostly I agree with you guys. But I do think that Paul does emerge in this film as very awkward, very uh, adolescent, and sort of beginning to bloom. And uh, I think it matters to him when he has to kill the, uh, uh, someone. I think it, he, he does make reference to the fact that the Freemen are slaves a few times in the film, uh, and, and obviously is disgusted by that. Um, and I think, Think that the movie does do one thing really, really well. Paul is the center of the film, and they stay mostly with his arc. He's he's obviously the lead in the film, but they don't give you a reason to doubt any of the other characters. Maybe they're presenting them simply, but um, for instance, his father, I don't think, comes across as just a piece of cardboard. I don't think Baron Harkonnen... In fact, I think Baron Harkonnen is great in the film, but I don't think Baron Car- Harkonnen just comes across like a cartoon. It's 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 like a almost like a quiet ensemble. Um, it's almost a little Shakespearean, but without the complexity of Shakespeare and without the without the dialogue, more of the 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 um, sort of the you know the sense that large things are impending. Um, yeah, I mean, it it does. Shakespearean's kind of a good way to describe it, actually, just in terms of the way that um, 
uh, you know, in Shakespeare, you know, you have to keep track of, you know, different characters and and, and it's work just to kind of like keep up with, with the narrative. And I, I think that, um, and, and there's a gratification in that too. I, that's not a criticism. That's just, that's just kind of the way this movie feels, I guess. To give an example of what I'm talking about, so there's there's a scene um, kind of at the the turn between the first act and the second act where we see uh, Duke Atreides and Jessica together. They're they're alone in in their bedroom together, and they're kind of just having a conversation. And uh, there's there's a moment where uh, Oscar Isaac uh, says in a very low voice, he says, "I should have married you." And it's it's kind of this tender moment, like he, his head is in her lap, she's stroking his hair, and you know he he comes out with this, and that's honestly like that seems like the kernel of that's that's key to their relationship, but then that moment immediately segues into this this assault on the the Atreides home and uh, uh, this huge action sequence, and it felt to me at least like that moment kind of got lost. So it was it wasn't so much that the problem was that they were undeveloped. It just felt like the the notes, the character notes that were there uh just didn't have the time to be to to breathe and really let us feel something and get to spend time with these characters just because it felt like Villeneuve was kind of in a rush to get to the next plot point because you know time's a ticking and he's only got three hours. Well, and it's funny because you know mostly Villeneuve's movies are pretty character driven. Yeah, that that's why it was it surprised me as well because you know something like Arrival is just you know it's so good with both the sci-fi elements and the the character moments. We could have got a development of the characters better. There were a lot of chases. I wrote too many chases in my book and I, in my uh, notes when I saw <laughs> the movie. And I definitely think that we. Sh- I love the scene with where Paul was talking about the palm trees with the. Uh, he's not Fremen, but he's a native Iraqian. Uh, and I think that was showing you the goodness in Paul, which I think is very crucial to understanding this story and understanding what's coming next. Uh, however, if we got a couple scenes like that and a couple scenes like the bedroom scene you mentioned where we kind of got to know the characters better and develop them, but I feel like there are a lot of chases. <laughs> if we had removed a couple of chases, uh, you know, um, pod racing style chases, if that storm where they flew through the storm could have been a little shorter we could have got to know at least Paul a little bit better. Um, I think the movie might have been more uh, dramatically appealing. But then again, would we have lost some of the spectacle that's going to sell tickets? Would it have been boring? Because this is pretty much the best CGI I've ever seen. And to think of losing any of those beautiful battle scenes that just look incredible. um, I don't know. You know, I, I could have sat for five hours and had both. See, I felt that way about Avatar. I think that, that sometimes you just feel confronted by a world um, and you're watching somebody build that world and you you really almost feel like the world is the point of the film. And here, while I don't certainly don't feel that any of the characters or the plotting is an afterthought, there there is that sense in which Villeneuve seems to see the heart of the source material as as dune itself as as the environments that these people are in like harkonnen is in this incredibly you know um 
really almost Shakespearean sort of dungeon-like environment. And hmm. you, you see, uh, you know, everybody, everybody inhabiting almost more than you see them living. You see them doing the sorts of things you associate with those environments, whether it's torturing somebody or walking regally through, you know, uh, uh, an area or, you know. I would say that's important to capture the tone of Dune. The noble houses are like a a mood unto themselves. So um, I think that that's very tonally important. I don't think that comes from the movie. I think that's inherited from the book. Yeah. And hard to bring on screen. I mean, it, Dave's definitely right, though, that I think this is a movie that, you know, even though I found myself pretty uninvolved by it on the whole, it is the sort of movie where there's a certain pleasure to just sitting sitting there in front of it and kind of just letting it wash over you. And, like, I can I can see myself maybe even having almost a better time with the film if I stopped trying to think about the story or really engage with the characters and more just kind of approach it almost the way, again, you, you might approach something like 2001 where it's much more of a, a sensory, almost like sub, uh, sub rational experience, I guess, where, where it's more about the images, about the, the scale, about the, the grandeur and just the way those things act upon you, uh, you know, emotionally and, uh, just, on an almost animal level, I think is maybe the thing that is, is the best about this movie is just the way that it's got this tactility. Like when, when, uh, uh, Paul Atreides is walking through his home, there's this lamp that's kind of following him around and it kind of, it looks plausibly like a device that people would actually build. It's not like some sort of star Wars gadget where it's making beeps and boops and, you know, you can kind of imagine it turning into a toy at some point. Like it, it feels very um, utilitarian, but it also Kevin's. That's what somebody bring, has to yeah. do. That's what somebody has to do is they have to go through Dune and add all the beeps and boops and Star Trek door openings and all of that stuff. That would be. I would watch the daylights out of that cut. <laughs> I'm I'm sure that as we speak, there's there's some you know uh, post production editing guy who's who's putting together a YouTube video that does just that. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, just to to get back to the point though, it's just it's that kind of tactility I think is is the mo- is the movie's strongest point and you know, I I enjoyed spending time in this world. I was disappointed maybe that there wasn't more to hold on to uh in terms of character uh in this world, but there's a lot to be said for just having a director and his, you know, his collaborators, his production designers, his makeup artists, his set designers, all kind of working together to produce a vision on this, on this scale. So moving on from, I guess, the, uh, the, um, the, the filmmaking aspect, I kind of wanted to talk about the themes a little bit, because like Michael was talking about, this is a, a story that really does intentionally try to speak to our present cultural moment. And there's specifically a lot of um, colonialist commentary in this. The you know the Fremen are the native people of Arrakis, and uh, they're they're kind of used to being exploited in various ways. It's first the the villainous Harkonnens are there, just you know attacking them uh, militarily, and 
just exploiting their land. And then the Atreides come in with much more high-minded ideals. But from the Fremen's perspective, it's still, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's still just another another taskmaster, another overlord who is going to do what they want, maybe at the Fremen's expense. Um, and I kind of wanted to get you guys' thoughts on uh, the places where that critique goes and, and how effective you thought it was. You've picked up on a lot of uh, the subtle criticisms of its day that have you know been transferred from the book to this movie, not to keep going back to the book. But uh, I think that Leto uh, Duglio is very... He's a very interesting character and House Atreides is very interesting in that you are right. They are the softer, gentler, new colonial overlords. And I think the way they are presented in the movie with banners, flags, salutes is a nod to that. However, we're also getting it from their perspective. So we see them as a positive force. But I was very um, happy that that was nodded to subtly in the movie. And I do agree that it it is in there. The the House Atreides, House Harkonnen, they are, House Harkonnen, as some say, are there to exploit the spice. The spice must flow. That is the all-important aspect of Arrakis, of this universe, in fact. So, Dave, you said that the, the, the Fremen are slaves. They are not slaves. <laughs> they, are, they are definitely oppressed from time to time, but they are in many ways the freest people of the Imperium. Everyone else is under the control of Chome or under the control of the Great Lords or under the control of the Bene Gesserit. You know, it's kind of a three-stool society. You have the religious society, the military, represented by the Great Houses, and the economic, represented by Chome. So the, the Fremen are in a way the freest of the people. And the they are hated for that reason by the Imperium. And although House Atreides, under Duke Leto's leadership, had the plan to turn them to their side, the ultimate goal was, again, to keep the, keep the planet under control and the spice flowing. And uh, we even see this in the confrontation between Javier Bardem's char- character and uh, the Duke. Uh, you know, they... Even though that this is going to be a soft, kinder, gentler rule, he cannot guarantee that he will not. He says, it's I'm ruling it as a fief and right. You know, I have the right to do, the emperors give me the right to do this. And they're just coming from very different worlds. And the diff- one is, one is uh, one side is benefiting monetarily, the outworlders, and the other side is losing land and having their world ravaged against their will, the Fremen and the other natives of Arrakis. Uh, so it's definitely, I think... From it was coming out, you know, Night Dune came out in the wake of uh, the, you know, I don't know if the Wars of Independence in Africa, Algeria's War of Independence was raging in 1965. And there is a lot of, uh, of um, kind of like, I want to say pseudo Arabism, pseudo Islamic stuff in there. So that may be an influence on, uh, on this book, but it definitely does have an anti colonial feel to it and it's mining the depths of western culture you know it's mining our imagery from the middle ages it's mining the imagery from the outright colonial era to to you know tap into those emotional nerves with us yeah there there is kind of a a sense both in the uh the you know the set design the production design but also the way that villeneuve um you know films the the atreides soldiers you know shouting you know in unison atreides atreides and it's got kind of some some overtones if not fascist overtones at least kind of like the overtones of maybe imperial rome 
where you know the the this is this gigantic powerful force and they're kind of there to do what they want and the fremen can get on board with that but at the end of the day they don't have to be on board in order for duke leto to to do what he he wants and i think that that's that's kind of an interesting dynamic for the movie to be exploring well duke leto and and the harkonnens and for that matter the emperor all think that the fremens don't need to be on board and of course the Part of the point that's, of the that's, story that's true. is that there are far more freemen and they have far more power than the Imperium gives them credit for. Um, insof- yeah, and, and it makes right. They're, they are not slaves in that absolutist sense, but they are, um, they are uh, an occupied uh, uh, force um, and... This idea right now, this zeitgeist that we're all struggling with, you know, um, about what's freedom, you know, um, you know, everybody's talking about how many people are quitting their jobs and looking for other work or just refusing to go back to work or going on strike. And it has to do, I think, with this idea of the commodification of everything. And Hmm. you can only commodify a people so far before they begin to oppose that themselves. And I think that that, that to me, was alive in this movie. I think that um, the economy, insofar as it treats women in this movie, is very interesting. And the character of Jessica is a pretty compelling character. And um, the, 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 the character that Paul uh, is now in... Um, um, you know, uh, not not a romantic relationship, but but a but a you know cultural connection with that is a the, the that is part of the Freeman. She is, I think, going to figure very very heavily in what's coming up, and I think that that's that's a big thing to remember here, and it's a plus for Villeneuve again in trying to make Dune a character as much as he is, make a rack as a character, make the technology and the, and the, and sort of the dour world of the Imperium. Um, Cause that's one thing all the sets have in common is they're very just sort of um, blocky and, and um, almost just harsh and a little cold. And I think that, you know, if that's all the Imperium has to offer people kind, then, um, the Fremen all of a sudden seem to understand something about the universe that, that no one else understands. And that is that you can't commodify your way into a society that is, um, that's a society that people are going to want to live in. Yeah. And that's even underscored in the, you know, in, in the costuming, the way that, you know, you've got this big chunky armor and the, the personal shields that, you know, everybody from the great houses wears contrasted with the the veils and the still suits of the Fremen, which are, you know, they're utilitarian in their own way, but they're also there's a a a, a grace to them that you is utterly lacking in the the houses and structures and um communities of the the Harkonnens or the or or the or the Atreides. First I'll comment that, that 
on the capitalist aspect of it. You know, I th- one, one scene that I think is key to understanding the difference between the Harkonnen, the Fremen, and the Atreides is the scene, great scene in the movie where the spice collector is stuck. They can't get it out. And the uh, Dr. Keynes is surprised that House Atreides is willing to sacrifice a spice to rescue people. Um, so you got three, three, vision, three versions of how that would have went. The Fremen don't care about the spice. Uh, the Atreides care about people, and the Harkonnen don't care about anything but the spice. Um, so it kind of it's a scene that kind of highlights their differences. We don't the Harkonnen aren't there. The Harkonnen aren't there. We can't don't know what they would have done. But we have an idea from the, you know, the description of their rule earlier. Anyway, onto the the aesthetics. You know, the Atreides seem much more pleasing when they're on Caladan, and their overall aesthetic. They wear blue, cool colors. Um, they're very noble. They live in a stone castle beside a beautiful sea. Um, but at the same time, they're frozen in their social hierarchy. Definite deference is always given to the to uh, the Duke and his son and his heirs, and everyone else is just there to serve. Uh, and I, it gets back to the tone. It's like every house has its own look and feel. The Harkonnens, you know, I don't know if the Harkonnens built the buildings on Arrakis. That's something I was trying to think about. Uh, but they definitely are utilitarian in the sense that they only serve the purpose to survive the spice and to mine the spice. And we see the Harkonnen homeworld. That's very dark, mechanical, very keeping with their look. Whereas the Fremen are portrayed as natural, um, a part of nature. And actually we can talk about that's an aspect of colonial colonialism as well. And also who was chosen to cast who it seems like they picked a lot of, um, to me, it seems like they picked a lot of brown people to play the Fremen and then got the brownest white guy, Javier Bardem, to uh, play their leader. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we could talk about that. But uh, there there are some colonial and Orientalist aspects to even the look and feel. It, it remains to be seen if the the follow up to, to this movie is going to be able to sidestep, I guess, the the one of the critiques that gets lobbed at. at Herbert's novel, which is that, you know, it's another, it's a story about a great white savior, you know, integrating into a, uh, a native culture and kind of being the one to, to bring peace to everybody. You know, it's kind of the, the dances with wolves, uh, Dave, you mentioned avatar earlier. That's kind of an archetype in that as well. And it's kind of been, uh, appearing over and over in, in these sorts of stories. So it'll be interesting to see if Villeneuve kind of finds a way to, complicate that somehow or, or do something with it where it's not just reifying the the same old trope that we've seen many times before well you know you know now that you mention it i mean i think one of the things that strikes me is you have mainly white men older guys because they're being trusted with hundreds of millions of dollars um doing their thing and they've had to learn how to survive in a system right they've had to learn how to get to the place where they are, where somebody's going to give them hundreds of millions of dollars to make a movie. And I think that the idea of seeing themselves and their characters to some degree um, also might come into play here because who doesn't want to be the hero? Who doesn't want to be the person who starts out as just, you know, an avatar, we have this guy who's in a wheelchair. And, you know, who doesn't want to imagine that person 
being able to walk, for instance, um, being able to jump and have adventures and, and do the things that the natives of Avatar do. But I think that the interesting thing about that is in real life, we understand that isn't how life works. And so these heroes, and I think to some extent, some of the Marvel heroes, they just feel a little um, like they're not bringing anything to the table anymore. Um, it's harder and harder to invest in them for our culture. And I'll be real curious to see what the box office numbers are on this film. Uh, and real curious to hear the, the sorts of uh, criticisms that might come up. Because I think you're right. I think it's going to be hard to sidestep that um, uh, uh, aspect of, of Herbert's narrative. But, you know, if you think of anybody is going to have a trick up his sleeve or something to say about that or insight into that, it would be Villeneuve. And so I, I'm, I'm hoping he's able to pull something out. Yeah, well, definitely something to remain that remains to be seen. We're interested to to see what happens. Um, that is our review of Dune for now. I mean, there's so much more that we could talk about. We didn't even get into the the Bene Gesserit and kind of their the the religious undertones of of this this you know sect of quasi Catholic psychic nuns. It's 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 a crazy setting and it's really interesting to think about. But we'll have to leave it there for now. And I am li- really curious to know, listeners, if you get a chance to see Dune, uh, it's coming out this weekend as this episode is being released. It's coming out the same weekend. So if you get a chance to see it opening weekend and have thoughts, we're all ears. We, we love to hear what you think over here on Seeing and Believing. Uh, but for now, uh, Dave and Michael, this is the part of the show w- towards the end where we uh, have our recommendation segment where each person shares something from the world of television or film that they want to share with our listeners, recommend that they check out for themselves. Uh, Michael, we'll start with you. Uh, What recommendation do you think that our listeners should check out? Well, you could absolutely walk into Denis Villeneuve's movie this weekend and enjoy it without ever having picked up the Dune novel. It's great. That cannot be said about David Lynch's Dune. I think David Lynch's Dune is a is my recommendation, by the way. David Lynch's Dune is a companion piece to the novel and is lacking in its um, cohesion and storytelling. However, I'm recommending it for the reason that it totally picks up and maybe even expands and goes farther upon the weirdness, the foreignness, the under the the completely ununderstandable elements that are in the Dune universe. These things that are not in the Vinov film, uh, you know, the Vinov film is great. I, I enjoy it a lot. Go see it. But if you really want to understand how it weird Dune feels, and you got a little bit of a primer from knowing the story already and can kind of gloss over some of those <laughs> those issues with uh, the incoherency, uh, I recommend you watch that. It is I, I like the things that Lynch did with the date with the Dune universe. I like the way the Trade Guild is portrayed he got a little bit more into the criticism of corporatism which is completely missing from the Vinov film so for these reasons i think that you should um you should you should check out david lynch's version as dune as well if i've convinced uh, you well i i i still need to check it out i am interested in seeing it just because the descriptions of it make it sound like such such a wild film in a lot of ways that even if it's not 
good, traditionally speaking. It seems like it'd just be a very interesting movie to watch. I, I really hope. I think what you should do is you should go on YouTube and uh, and search for David Lynch's Dune Trade Guild and watch the scene where the Trade Guild leader is. Um, I'm sorry the the spice the the spice travelers guild the spice the spacefaring the space guilds guy is wheeled in and if you can handle that scene if that scene appeals to you you'll know whether you like the whole movie or not <laughs> okay uh i'll i'll definitely check that out uh, i hope that i haven't sown any seeds of discontent in the mind frames universe by you know it, dave mentioning his uh mst3king of of lynch's <laughs> doom when it first came out versus that impassioned defense of it from michael so you know i I hope there's no bad I'll blood. I'll provide a here. link for your users I for think, that scene I mentioned. No, there I was think, only bad blood. <laughs> we're we're hearkening in a hey, over that, here. Okay. Let I you guess which one's is, which. I think the truth is is that um, Mike can mine my spice anytime. I'm 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 fine. I'm fine with Mike's uh, love for Dune because I have a lot of it too. Um, I, I did not discover it at the same time in my life that he did, and uh, I think he has a much more mature. Uh, ver- uh, understanding of it than 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 my memory of it, having seen it the way I did, provokes in me. But it is a startlingly beautiful film. It is, however, not my recommendation. You want to hear my recommendation? Yeah, bring okay, it. Okay, it is Halloween season, folks. We could talk about Dune all we want, but let's face it: what we really need to be doing is finding our happy, scary medium. And that's what I'm going to recommend to you today is The Medium. It's a 2021 uh, film from um, Thailand. And it has a really impressive pedigree. Uh, the director, uh, Banjong Pisantanankan, uh, was the director of one of the great horror movies uh, to come in that first Asian wave that brought us the ring and a tale of two sisters and the grudge. And that was a movie called Shutter, S-H-U-T-T-E-R. It was remade for America, not badly, but Shutter was one of those rare movies where every single scary money shot worked. And I don't know anybody that I've ever shown it to who wasn't royally creeped out by it. Um, he manages to do that again here, and he does it with the help of uh, Nan Hong Jin. And Nan Hong Jin is best known for a movie that came out um, in uh, 2016 called The Wailing, which um, is just one of the very best horror movies of the last 10 years. Fantastic film. This is basically about um, a shaman from Thailand and the way that they inherit their um their job basically of being shaman from the gods uh or spirits that they serve and in this case um a family has had some disagreement about who is going to in- inherit this position within the community and uh that they live in that services people's spiritual needs and they um they they wind up having to deal with the ramifications of that. Um, this movie is about two hours and ten minutes long. It starts out kind of like a documentary about um, this, you know, region of Thailand, the Isan region of Thailand, and the history of, of shamanism there. 
uh, and then all of a sudden it takes a left turn. And, you know, we've seen a lot of horror movies in the last while that deal with the family, and they have been some of our very greatest horror films. Um, and I'm thinking of films like, um, like uh, Relic and Hereditary. Uh, this is a movie you put right on the shelf um, with those. Uh, fantastic film, very scary uh, as, it, as it progresses, and uh, definitely a little bit off the beat and path. Uh, of the movies that you uh, probably would just think to uh, stream or uh, toss in your DVD player this Halloween season. Uh, you can find it on Shudder, the medium. And and wh- what's that director's name again? <laughs> you are an, you are an <laughs> unkind soul. The director's name is... <laughs> yeah, and try to, re- try to say it in a way that doesn't sound oh like you're mocking Oh my gosh! Okay. Banjong Pisantanakan. Okay. That's no, that's good. I, I, what, I honestly wasn't trying to uh, push you in anything. I just wanted to make sure that I got that right for for myself because those other movies that you that you suggested that um, are kind of in the same vein. I just wanted to make sure that I could uh, maybe follow that rabbit hole down well, a little bit lower. And it's a great rabbit um, hole. Um, Na Hong Jin is the other uh, other person that you want to follow his uh, his uh, pedigree as well. Okay. Well, that's that's a really great recommendation, Dave. Thanks for for bringing that. Uh, my recommendation is one that I I think I might have actually recommended on the show before, but it just seemed too appropriate for uh, this particular episode. So I might be recommending it again. Uh, you know, earlier in our when we were reviewing Dune, I was talking about how it does seem like a, the sort of movie that it just feels uh, like it would work really well to just let it wash over you, not try to think too hard about the specifics of the plot or try to parse all the different rivalries and just sort of let yourself experience it first and foremost. And my recommendation for this week is a film that is sci-fi and kind of works on a similar level. And that would be Darren Aronofsky's 2006 film, The Fountain. Um, This is a, a movie that uh, judging by the uh, the reactions of of my friends who have seen it, it tends to be a love or hate it kind uh, of kind of film. It's a movie about that that kind of takes place in three parallel timelines: one kind of during the age of the Spanish conquistadors, one in the modern day, and one in the future. And in each timeline, there is a man played by Hugh Jackman who is on a quest of sorts to be reunited with a woman played by Rachel Weiss. And the way that Aronofsky weaves these three timelines together so that they comment on each other, so that uh, they they enrich each other emotionally is just awe-inspiring. And it's also just got this, it's very strange. The, the futuristic timeline involves Hugh Jackman basically dressed like a monk floating through space in a giant soap bubble with a tree inside of it. That's, you know, there's a lot going on in this film. It's very unconventional, but I just, I love it. And I think it's one of those movies that if you stop trying to figure it out or sort of like shake it until the meaning falls out and just sort of let yourself experience it and especially experience the emotions, it might be Aronofsky's most emotional film. Uh, I think it's got a lot of of, of pleasures to to offer the the attentive viewer. So yeah, uh, Darren Aronofsky's The Fountain is my recommendation for this week. 
I'm on record with where I stand with that movie. I'm a big fan of it. Oh, great. I, I knew I liked you guys. <laughs> I, I got to interview I got to interview Aronofsky on that tour and I just sat there in awe because nothing had prepared me for the that sort of a spiritual, you know, quest movie. It was just such a great movie. Well, that is the end of the episode. We've we've reached the uh, the final minutes. Uh, before we sign off, though, uh, I want to ask uh, you guys uh, if there was anything that you you wanted to plug. I know that you obviously co-host a podcast together, and I was just wondering if uh, our listeners wanted to check that out for themselves. Uh, you know, how would you uh, pitch that to them? <laughs> we, I'm well, giving you a chance to go, Dave. I, I feel like I could go, well, or I'll okay, give you the chance here, to pitch. We don't you smell do. like tuna. Um, okay. So there's that's pleasant. I think there's um, there's a sense in which I think that um, I should stop talking and let Mike do this. <laughs> sure, why not? Uh, <laughs> All right, we'll we'll yeah, pull you an audible. Check us out. Then. You know, we are on. I <laughs> yeah, I could I can do a. You will edit, yeah, please we'll edit me out. Yeah. You can add on at the end of mine, but <laughs> yeah, we um, Mind Frames is a great place if you're interested in themes, like uh, very much like your podcast. We do occasionally dip into the spiritual, as both spiritual people, both religious people. I'm religious, Dave. You're you're spiritual. You're you're on the spectrum somewhere. Um, so it might be of interest to your visitors. We we don't really review movies. We do give a recommendation or not a recommendation. It's a very small part of our podcast, but we're very thematic. We usually try to take one big theme out of uh, every film and discuss it sometimes two, but usually one big theme. Um, and sometimes we get it wrong, but we always try to have fun. And that's our podcast available on iTunes, wherever you find your podcast. It's called mind frames. Mm, that sounds, that sounds really good. I, I confess I haven't had a chance. To, I didn't have a chance to check it out before we jumped into the, into recording this episode, but that sounds like a, just a, a really fantastic listen and yeah, I'm looking forward to, to checking, checking it out and uh, hearing more about it. We generally just, you know, we, we try to discourage people from listening to the podcast prior to actually getting a chance to be on their show, you know, cause uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, that's a kind of a more organic way to actually end up on other people's shows. We find um, you can also find us by the way, on the now playing network. Well, definitely, listeners, if you have a chance to check out Mind Frames, it sounds like a really good use of your time. Uh, but that is the end of our episode. Um, thanks so much again, uh, Michael and Dave, for, for coming on the show. Always always uh, a pleasure to to hear some, some new perspectives. And uh, yeah, it was really great to talk Dune with you guys. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by, of course, the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan, and I'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.